You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. I'm here today with John Roberts, who is a professor here at Stanford Graduate School of Business, author of countless articles, and also you've got these wonderful books, which I think summarize a lot of your research and related research in ways that are accessible. So you've got this textbook here, Economics, Organization, and Management, which was um, a textbook in one of my classes for many years. Now it's out of print, sadly. And then, of course, this book, The Modern Firm, which is a series of lectures. And what's remarkable about this book is that there isn't a single equation in here, but there are a couple pictures. And so I was like, wait, I, I want more pictures. Right? <laughs> it's very hard for me to talk about these things without pictures, but this book is still amazing. And I was just rereading it and it made, well, me, you. made me realize how much of what you have done over the years in organizational economics has become almost like part of my operating system. I use all these concepts in my classes. So thanks. That's a wonderful compliment. <laughs> yeah. John, I wanted to start off just by asking you maybe to go back in time, right? Because you've, maybe not single-handedly, but along with a bunch of your colleagues created this entire area of economics, really, which is mm -hmm. organizational economics. And, you know, you were inspired by folks like Coase, but Coase and some of the other folks who were asking these questions, they were not really part of the modern economics methodology, right? They didn't attempt to formalize their insights. They didn't create models that you could test and that you could evaluate and build on. And so tell us a little bit about the early days of, of how organizational economics came to be as a discipline. Well, for me, it was part of an intellectual journey. I started out as a mathematical economist and wrote probably the most irrelevant PhD dissertation ever. But then I was hired by a business school. Mm -hmm. And I started off teaching just ordinary, vanilla, accepted economics. But working with kids who were going to be managers, I got more interested in real competition. So I, I did some stuff in I.O. That actually was very influential, bringing the, what we did. Paul Milgram and I brought the theory of games with incomplete information into looking at competition and, and things like that. So anyway, I started doing that, and I started getting involved with firms just because I felt so ignorant. Um, I was working out of a textbook that had all the—it was an encyclopedic textbook by Fred Shearer, and it had all the stuff in there, but there was not much empirical stuff and nothing like case studies. And so I started a course, uh, MBA elective, on organizations. It was sort of an MBA elective in incomplete information, but the stuff I'd done was I.O. like, so questions of whether uh, limit pricing makes sense or whether uh, predatory pricing might make sense, which Chicago had decreed that neither of those made sense, so they didn't exist, so the antitrust people stopped worrying about them. And so I started spending time with firms, and mostly 
just hanging out inside the firm and asking questions and looking at how they do things. For example, I spent a lot of weeks in December and January of 84, 85 in Helsinki, looking at what Nokia did. Mm -hmm. And I got particularly involved with British Petroleum. Yeah. John Brown, who was the guy who turned BP around and took it from a fourth-rate oil company to a massive energy mm -hmm. company. He was chairman of the advisory council here. He's an alum of the school. And I appealed to him, and he basically gave me run of the company. I talked to lots of people, and then I ended up organizing an executive program for BP that BP sent, I think it was 200 of their managers through it. So I got to know a lot of those people. And I got to know General Motors, Cummins Engine, mm -hmm. and all kinds of companies, Toyota, Sony. Well, one of the things that comes out of your work, if you dig deep, is you get an appreciation for how difficult management actually is. These decisions, you know, around the size and scope of the firm, what activities should they be engaged in, right? How do you divisionalize things? How do you design incentive schemes? These things are exceptionally difficult. And yet I think most people think that managers do this stuff almost in intuitively. So is part of what economists do are, are they just seeing that something works in practice and then they just try to figure out how See if it works, works in theory, theory, right? Is that part? Because there's, there seems to be, there's a descriptive part, which is just sort of explaining why things are the way they are. But then there's also this prescriptive part, which is, hey, you know, here are some techniques that you can use to, to improve the quality of your management. Uh -huh. Do you see your, your work as being more descriptive or, or more prescriptive? Both. It's both. One of the empirical facts that's come out and become well-established is that there are huge differences in productivity mm -hmm. across firms, even across plants in the same firm. Mm -hmm. And this is true not just of high-tech or complex technologies. It's true in ice block mm -hmm. and white bread. There's this um, one stu study you were involved in where... You did an experiment in India, right, yeah. where you went to these managers of textile mills and <laughs> gave some of them a little basic management education and their productivity took off. That's right. That was an important study because people had seen this variation of productivity. And a lot of people said, oh, it's probably management, mm -hmm. but you could have other explanations. And a few were floated. But this actually established cause and effect because mm -hmm. it was a randomized controlled trial and we, some of them got help and some of them didn't. And the ones that got help did way, way better than they were before and way better than mm -hmm. the, the ones who were in the control group. And now experimental work on organizations is pretty difficult because it's, first of all, getting the company to try one thing that, uh, for only in what part of the right. organization. The other is, folks are be like, what's going on over there? Yeah. Yeah. And they're expensive. We spent $1.8 million on that India study. Right. It, you can imagine a world where you do clinical trials on all of these yeah. you know, ideas that, that we cook up in, in business school. That'd be a cool yeah. universe, right? 
Yeah, and that's what the India study was. Mm -hmm. It was a, a clinical trial. But again, it cost an arm and a leg because we were paying for consultants to go in and hold their hands mm -hmm. for several months. And most firms are not willing to make those ex run experiments. They'll run experiments, I think, on relatively incremental changes. Let's tinker with the font size or tinker with an email campaign. But tinkering with your organizational architecture yeah. is, is pretty tough. Yeah. We were lucky in that one of our PhD students, a guy named James Liang, had started this outfit called C-Trip in, in uh, China, which was a travel agency. And he got it and he built it up to the biggest travel agency in China, and he got bored and came back and did a PhD with us. And learned about the India study and he he was he actually had a job at University of Chicago, but the board asked him to come back because the company had fallen apart without him. Mm -hmm. So uh, we had one of our PhD students who was interested in experiments running this company. So he let us run an experiment where some people worked from home and some people stayed in the office and they measured the effect that had and it had a big impact these are people in the call centers and their output went up considerably as i remember on the order of 10 12 percent and they decided that this was a success so they said anybody who wants to work from home can do so, we'll supply the uh, computer for you to do it, phone bills. But if you don't, you're welcome to come back to the office. So then you get both the incentive effects and the selection effects mm -hmm. because the people who do it are the ones who want it to. And that ended up giving a 25% increase in output. Mm -hmm. Astronomical. But it seems puzzling, right? You'd think that some Darwinian process, I mean, if, if you have all these different experiments being run in different organizations and, mm -hmm. and some of them are successful, the way we teach it in our classes is, is if one organization stumbles on something that works, then all the other organizations are just going to copy it, right? But we don't see that. We see much slower than expected diffusion yes. in terms of ideas. I absolutely agree. I think some of it is... The way we put together organizations, they aren't built to explore, to look for different things to do and do things differently. If you're measured by this quarter's stock price or whatever, spending, risking your business, trying out some guy's idea that may have worked in his industry and his company, well, there's nothing in it for you. Mm -hmm. The return system for the decision makers is bad for that. Now, I think when you start thinking about more turbulent environments like high tech, things are changing all the time. So there's, you can't sit on an, an old fashioned way mm -hmm. of doing things, but you can try and fail. That's what Nokia did. Nokia went from a bit player in 90 industries to 
totally focusing on mobile communication. Mm -hmm. And they went from near bankrupt in 91 to the most valuable company in Europe by 2000. Mm -hmm. And they completely wiped Motorola out of the market. But they missed the clamshell. Mm -hmm. They had their way of doing it, and it was a smaller and smaller brick. And the clamshell came along. Nokia didn't make it, and Nokia's market share went like that, and it's now only makes switches. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make phones anymore, because they stuck to what they knew how to do, even though uh, everybody else seemed to think that that clams are the way to go. You mentioned Explore, and of course, you cite Jim March and the famous Explore versus Exploit dichotomy. He wasn't an economist. And when we think of organizational theory, organizational economics kind of bleeds into these things that we sometimes think of as having to do with culture and with norms and and beliefs and, Mm -hmm. and knowledge. How important is it that you take this kind of integrated approach to understanding organizations. Is there a danger that if you focus on one interpretive framework too narrowly, you're, you're going to miss a lot of the of what's going on? Can, can everything be incorporated into our, our economics models? Just can we, can we import the, the insight? Well, if we play a bit with the models, the people who are doing behavioral economics, not many of them are modeling, but they're, they're finding stuff experimentally. In the typically in the lab rather than in the field, but you can bring stuff in from that, and you can. I mean, I've come to the position that probably the most important thing in an organization is the culture. Mm-hmm. Well, I may be drummed out of the prof- economics profession for saying that, but if you have a, a strong culture, that really determines the way people think, the way people interact what things they'll do and what mm-hmm. things they won't do, what they'll put up with, how much they focus on today versus tomorrow, a whole range of things that can be much more important than the formal architecture or the mm-hmm. established routines. Well, you know, if I think of what your contribution, I think of you as the, the articulator of fit. Right. So, you know, I I talk about complementarity all the time. It's Mm -hmm. kind of my broken record because I'm always talking about this. And, you know, you formalized this idea of complementarity. So people have always talked about having a fit between strategy and structure. People talk about having a fit between, you know, the architecture and the culture. And they talk Mm -hmm. about having a fit between this characteristic and that characteristic. And but all those conversations, they were they weren't formalized. Right. And you really formalized it. So why is it what is it? that was standing in the way of economics really getting into the shape of complementarity, right? What is it about the basic economic modeling techniques that make it difficult to ingest complementarities? Well, I mean, economists have always known about complementarity. You get it in your first lecture on Mm -hmm. demand, Mm -hmm. how the price of one good affects the demand for another good. But Economists have not typically thought much in terms of systems. The nature of economic modeling is Occam's razor. Make it as, make it, cut it down to as few variables as possible and get those right. 
that's fine if you don't have a lot of interaction mm. between that variable and other ones that are going on around you. And what the stuff, the work you're referring to that actually was started by mathematical programmers here in our engineering school, lattice optimization. And then Paul and I brought it into economics. And that, that it's very simple mathematics, much simpler than, than standard economic modeling, because you don't have to assume everything's smooth and differentiable. You don't have to assume that choice sets are convex. All the stuff that goes into the standard models you're led to naturally think about the interactions between variables because that's what lattices are about. Mm -hmm. If you got this and you got this, then in a lattice you also have this mm -hmm. and that. Okay. And those different points would have different payoffs. And the, so that means that the payoffs to doing this mm -hmm. depend on whether you've done this or not. Well, but that makes, that means that. If you have a coherent strategy, that means that all the parts fit together, but th that makes it difficult to switch. You get stuck in these local maximums, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's one of the economics, old style, assumed enough to get, the, if there was a zero on the derivative. You'd find it. You found it. Yeah. And it had a lot of trouble dealing with this kind of picture. Mm -hmm. Because we found a zero here and you stay there. And that's, you know, if you're doing local search mm -hmm. as a manager, thinking about changing things a little mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense. Because everywhere you look, if you're not looking all the way out there, you can't do better. The car industry from the 20th century, you know, Henry Ford built a system that fit together beautifully. It created the industry um, and the whole business of vertical integration and, and the assembly line and the, all of what he did um, was the right way to do it at the time. Until it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but then the environment changed. Mm -hmm. Technology changed as to what you could do and consumer taste became more varied. Ford would sell you anything as long as it was a black bottle team. Mm -hmm. You look at Toyota in the, the 80, 90 years later, they're making 350 engine variants on a single assembly line. Mm -hmm. One at a time, different. So there's huge opportunity for flexibility and using that flexibility to meet consumer demand mm -hmm. or customer demand. And that was one of these pictures. The world had looked like that for Henry Ford, but then this new part grew. And Toyota somehow stumbled on it. It was, they didn't have a map of what they had to do. They just started out trying to get rid of waste. Mm -hmm. And they were forced into some use of outside suppliers by Japanese government. And all the pieces of outsourcing, flexible manufacturing, and everything we think of as Toyota 
manufacturing system, which is now modern manufacturing. They worked it out. Once they got over here somewhere, then they crept around until they found the, the peak. Well, I mean, in my strategy classes, I, I preach the importance of commitment, and then I preach the importance of flexibility. Yeah, <laughs> and this, of course, the logical question the students ask is, "Okay, yes, so how do you yes. do? How do you do both?" Right? Uh-huh. That's a, it's a pretty good question. If you can solve that problem, then yeah. you'll be you'll be super wealthy. Yeah, but I mean, look, if you're building out a large organization and mm-hmm. you have a division of labor and you have everybody with distinct responsibilities. Don't you have to give them single peaked kind of reward systems to some degree? Isn't it the nature of the beast that that at least the, the individuals within the organization, they can only see that little piece of the organization and and you're stuck giving them rewards and incentives that that are comprehensible to them? Yeah, you can't run a centralized top-down hierarchic organization that's of any size. Even if the technology weren't changing on you, the environment changing on you. Um, even it, with the best communication technology, best information technology, you, they, you can't get the information from here to here. So you have to make a lot of decisions within the bowels of the business. And that means you have to make sure that the system is set up so that these decisions here are compatible with decisions that the other guy's making over here. And that that's a delicate thing to do. BP made it work in BP exploration, the drilling part, um, production part. What they did is they had a massive hierarchy with a matrix form and they got rid of all of it mm-hmm. there there was a executive committee with three people on it and then there were the individual managers of assets uh, like an oil field or a drilling rig and those guys down there were incentivized to find ways to cut cost because that's all that matters in the business is getting your costs down and your volumes up because you have no control over the price. It's a world market. And that worked pretty well. In fact, it worked exceptionally well in the original business. Didn't work so well when they tried to implement it in the distribution business, in the gas stations and whatnot, because... People expected a certain, you pull into a a McDonald's and you get McDonald's. You pull into BP, you should get the BP experience. So it didn't work nearly as well there. And for all my praising of BP in the modern firm, the comeback is, what about Deep Sea Horizon? Mm -hmm. And there, I think it was a cultural failure. I think the problem was a cultural failure. Most of the people working in BP in the U.S. were people who'd come over from Standard Oil when BP bought Standard Oil. And Standard BP worked on the basis that you negotiated with the executive committee your objectives for the year in terms of cost, volume, safety, 
environment. And they would push hard on you. And you were supposed to push back. If you couldn't do it, you weren't supposed to take it on. You were supposed to say, I won't, can't do that. And they actually organized these managers together into groups for mutual support <laughs> and information sharing, <laughs> but also to support each other, right. to tell the bosses, this guy is not sandbagging. This is real. On the other hand, Standard Oil had been organized in a very command and control way, at least relative to BP. You got your objectives for the year and you met them or you were in big trouble. You didn't get to negotiate them. So if you got something you couldn't do, you found some way to do it. And typically, if that's, if what you're after is cost and volume, what can you cut back on to, to uh, meet those volume demands? Safety. And I think what my belief is that what happened is that the manager, the asset manager of Deepwater Horizon, when it was being built, was being pushed to keep the capital expenditure down. And they cut corners. Mm -hmm. And when they cut corners, they polluted the, the Gulf and destroyed BP's reputation. Well, you know, you talk a lot about influence activities, right? That's yeah. a big part of your work. And yeah, we all know anybody who's worked in an organization, you know, knows, knows what this is all about. Yeah. But it seems like in order for an organization to work effectively, they have to have a conscious strategy for minimizing the negative effects of this influencing activity. So now, look, you need to get information from people, yeah. but information and influence are stapled yeah. together. So yeah. how do you build out an organization that that allows for the collection of information from the people on the ground, but resists the all those influence activities? Yeah, depends a, a bit on what kind of influence activities it is. If it's buttering up the boss, mm -hmm. um, you make sure your managers have backbone. Mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty simple. Well, the more complicated thing is when the information is, is subject to manipulation, mm -hmm. the information that the, down in the organization can be manipulated advantageously for the manager doing it. That was Part of what BP was trying to do with this pressure down, but support for resistance mm -hmm. up. In any one instance, it's going to be hard to separate those out. The whole theory of mechanism design is attempt to, to figure out what you can do in that regard, though they mostly focus on auctions and selling devices and whatnot, and allocation mechanisms. But just Remembering that there's, there's a tomorrow, and if you screw around today and we learn about it, we'll punish you tomorrow is uh, a way to start it. Mm -hmm. But if it becomes endemic in the culture, I hasten to try and blame somebody for having that problem. One believes bureaucracies and government have it, but I'm sure bureaucracies and business have it. The only thing you can do, I think, is try and build an alignment which comes not just from the monetary compensation but by the culture 
by people getting the the respect and admiration of their of the other people in the organization. Well, you know, at at the time when you were writing both these books, it was pretty clear that we were undergoing a massive information revolution, right? Oh. It's only accelerated. And I remember back then, I was in grad school, half the people said that, ah, this is going to allow for lower agency costs and better collection of information from the periphery to the center. And therefore you're going to have bigger, bigger firms. And then of course the other side was like, no, no, all of this lower information cost is going to allow for more complex markets and lower transaction costs. And, you know, it seems like both of those are true, right? We, we, we see more yeah. complex markets and bigger organizations to some degree. Yeah. Nick Plume and John Van Rienen have a very important paper in this regard. It differentiates communication technology from information technology. Mm-hmm. And... Improving communication technology has radically different effects than improving information technology. I think that's what happened, was that people didn't see communication technology and information technology as separate things. Mm. They just saw them as the internet. So wait, so one of them is going to help Encourage centralization, Uh the other encourages decentralization. But I think that was a big part of what was going on, that that we weren't asking the right question. Mm -hmm. We were just talking about technology. We weren't talking about the specific technologies that were involved. There's Oftentimes we see a division of labor between the people who are thinking about the organization of the public sector and folks in, in the private sector, but it, it seems like there's complementarities there. And, and, and you talk a bit in the India article about how sort of a lack of rule of law made it difficult for these organizations to achieve any kind of scale yeah. in, in, in India. When we're looking at the kind of contrasting organizational structures in, say, U.S. versus Japan or different geographies, how much of that is is due to sort of a complementarity with the the, the, broad, the broader ecosystem. Yeah, I think I think the ecosystem, the environment is crucial. We already talked about Ford versus Toyota. Mm-hmm. That was a matter that the environment was different. The technology and the, the demands environments were different. But there's I think a tendency to overestimate the extent to which systems are embedded in the environment. Um, you know, Toyota was very nervous about coming to the U.S. That's why they had the uh, NUMI joint venture with GM, because they weren't sure that American workers were honest and hardworking. I mean, what's amazing about NUMI is that they, they actually did not replace the workforce. They kept more they or less. Absolutely. And every one of them. And you saw this dramatic increase in, in performance. It's kind of remarkable, right? Yeah. Well, now partly that was they had a long history of distrust mm-hmm. between the workers and GM. And Toyota made a big effort to bring in people from Japan, workers from Japan, to work with these guys and to talk about what it was like to work for mm-hmm. Toyota. 
And Toyota had this reputation that we don't do layoffs, things like that. And the workers said, okay, if you're not going to screw me over, I'll be cooperative with you and we'll work harder. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know a lot of some of my friends from business school would go in and take over these companies. They were poorly managed and they would alter the management and increase the performance and then, you know, exit. Yeah. And so is improvement in performance, does it usually travel with the people or can we come up with better ways of transferring knowledge? Is this, is it necessarily tacit knowledge? I mean, couldn't you put the tools and techniques into a series of bullet points and hand it over? <laughs> like here's your textbook well, and your tools and techniques, certainly. Yeah. But the point of the Numi example is that it wasn't tools and techniques. Yeah. It was, and it wasn't the people, it wasn't the architecture. It was the culture. Do we trust each other or not? And that's something that's going to be pretty hard to digitalize. Mm-hmm. I think it has to involve face-to-face involvement because I don't know the president of the university from Adam. I know the dean, and I trust him, mm-hmm. and I hope that he knows the president <laughs> and uh, has got an eye on him. I think, obviously, the consulting industry is an attempt to do this, to get around the need to put in a whole new set of managers. Yeah. So what's interesting to me is if you go to, say, Citadel, I remember one time I went to visit Citadel and I was walking around the hallways and everyone was reading Journal of Finance, stacks of printouts, (laughs) Journal of Financial Economics, Journal of Finance, and then these folks would go and, and trade based on insight that they had taken from academia. And some of your colleagues were important transmitters of this expertise. And it seems like the the world of finance has had their ear to academia and there's this direct transmission. But if you you walk into the CEO of General Motors office, you're not going to find your articles. So why is it that in in certain areas like finance, there's money to be made. Well, and in operations research, right? There's this, but when it comes to the, the really... I think of them as even you know, more important decisions, like how do you design your organization? Why isn't there that, that, that direct transmission mechanism from academia? It's well, a little bit more convoluted, right? There is. In strategy professors, marketing professors, HR people, they consult all the time. Mm-hmm. So there is that. The great advantage of, of finance in this regard is that it's, it is very much routines. Mm-hmm. It's, this is how the, you do it. And it's, it can be written down in a textbook, and you can go out and follow the rules, and you'll get the results. Management is a whole lot more complex than that. So carrying it mm. from that to the CEO's office, you can't package it up and, and hand it to something. It's such a complex system. The, what goes into the organization, what goes into the strategy, how they connect, how they fit into the environment, those are not like watch your alpha and pay attention to beta. And, mm-hmm. So in a way, because it's, it's more complex, it needs to go through lots of different filters and arrive at the, at the C-suite through different channels. 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The kind of, I've done programs for, I mentioned BP. I did a similar program for Deutsche Telekom. I've done a couple of other companies. And that's the problem with that. You can transmit the knowledge. And it's very good when you're working with a single company in a classroom of peers because they share the experiences and they can say that makes sense in our company or that doesn't make sense mm -hmm. in our company or how could we do it in our company. So executive education is one mechanism mm -hmm. and it's probably better at fundamental change if you're after it than consulting because consulting typically you have a client mm -hmm. in the firm right. you're working for <laughs> and uh you want to get done what she wants done mm -hmm. and you don't interact with other than to treat the other people in the organization as a source of information you don't really interact with them mm -hmm. so there's no shared experience in the company with the idea and i so i think in fact that's that's an area i think has tremendous opportunities it's not an easy sell and it it involves pulling a whole lot of people out of the organization at one time which means it can't go on for more than a couple of weeks or even a week um and that may not be enough to really get the thing going Right, but, but I think with strategy and types of decisions you're talking about, if, if it were just a sense, if it was just a matter of responding to local signals and adjusting the dial this way or that way, then it, it wouldn't require vision or courage. You talk about the importance of vision and courage as a, as a strategic leader. So it, it really requires that these leaders have the capacity to kind of pull back and look at things from a perspective that is somewhat removed from the day-to-day. This seems like a difficult thing. Not only is management difficult, but it seems like strategy is even more difficult because you have to somehow carve out the time to remove yourself from the, the pressures of your day-to-day -day yeah. role. Yeah, if you're going to keep your strategy fresh. And I, I think that you ought to think about designing strategy and designing the organization together. This is a very complicated problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think opportunities for senior managers to get away from things for a while are probably important and underdeveloped. My guess is that classroom education isn't the right way because the tendency is to prepare for the class. Mm -hmm. You don't have, you've got more time than usual, but you don't really have a chance to sit back, but it might be an element of it. So some combination of like small group class activities where there are a bunch of your peers and you're talking about big ideas combined with coaching, um, where you have somebody who like you ask good questions. I wanted to ask you about the place of strategy and organizations in the business school curriculum because strategy isn't that old i think i took it in one of its first years i think it was 91 when i was in school we had a course on strategy 
And some schools are even dropping strategy from the, their core curricula. And even in these strategy classes, organizations are kind of an afterthought. It's most of it's because yeah, it's people are trained in strategy. Yeah. But it's so it's okay. Here's how we interact with the, the environment and our competitors and our suppliers and so forth. But the, I look through some of the curricula and some of the business schools and there, there isn't actually anywhere in, in the curriculum where they say, okay, here's where we talk about boundaries of the firm. Here's where we talk about, okay, are we going to do a geographic division or are we going to do a functional division? Like that stuff is. And I'm perplexed because this seems to be what so many senior managers are, are focused on. How do uh -huh. I design the compensation scheme? How do I design the, the priorities? How do I build a culture? So is it because it's, is it because it's hard? Is that it? Could be. Or is uh, it that it doesn't have a nice place within the, the divisionalization of our research? Yeah, that's a large part of it, I think. And I don't think most economists think organizational econ economics exists, or if it does, they don't see why. Ed Lazier managed to make personnel economics work for a while, but Ed was really the driving force, and there are lots of people, young people, who, who do studies of how firms interact with their employees mm -hmm. rather than just standard labor market economics where this is the shape of the age distribution of the employments in the country. But there's no leadership there anymore. Ollie Williamson was the natural, would have been natural leader, but he was so focused on getting his own stuff, a Nobel Prize, that he didn't have much effect on the rest of economics. You heard him talk about transactions, costs, uh, whatnot, and it's like Coase said, the nature of the firm was the most highly, had the highest ratio of citations to reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we can reverse that. I mean, but really, you have organizational economics, but you have information economics, you have mechanism <laughs> design, yeah. there's contract theory. These are all different terms for things that ultimately are themselves complementary, right? Yes. I believe that most of contract theory could be brought in under org econ. Personnel economics, to me, is clearly a subset of org econ. A lot of corporate governance is the mm -hmm. way it's... It is not a, yet a really established way for people to do economics or to ask those questions in economics. They're asked in business schools. There are strategy groups. There are strategy scholars. There are organization behavior people who sometimes think about these issues. So they get some attention, but they get no attention in economics departments. I think. MIT is the only place in, in the country where you can get uh, organizational economics as one of your fields. Mm -hmm. And whether that will survive Bank Holmstrom's retirement, uh, I don't know. But I, if it does, it won't survive Bob Gibbons' retirement. Mm. Well, last question. You know, when you wrote this book, Modern Firm, you're highlighting a trend, which was sort of the distribution of decision-making into lower levels and the creation mm -hmm. of smaller teams and maybe more of a flatter hierarchy and so forth. 
this is before we saw the rise of Amazon and of Apple and mm-hmm. Microsoft. And, you know, we have these firms that monopolize the S&P 500. Were you surprised at all by the emergence of these firms? They have a, they're big, obviously, but they do have a management structure, which is different from what you saw at say, General Motors and back yeah. in the day, right? First of all, the size is not that great if you're looking at GDP rather than the stock market, okay? But the the way that Amazon has taken over retailing, I think, has surprised people. Uh, it certainly surprised me. I, did, I didn't think that I would go for shopping online. My wife, on the other hand, gets four to five packages a day. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> um, and it's everything from our groceries to mm-hmm. toilet paper to cosmetics mm-hmm. to clothing. And I've bought a pair of shoes and sent them back, and that's been about the extent of my online purchases. I like to joke that if they had a Nobel Prize in management, which Mm -hmm. they don't, if they did, then I think Jeff Bezos and Andy Jassy might have to be the first recipients. It could be. Because these folks are creating these incredibly powerful organizational forms, but they, they don't, they do it in a way that is not explicitly theorized, right? So there's this, it's part of our job is to figure out how to explain what it is that they're doing. And then ultimately that helps others to to learn from it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I'm retired. Listen, it's not my fault. <laughs> I, I hope these books are fantastic. I hope that we can somehow figure out a way to persuade the publishers to get this thing yes. back in print so I can start assigning it to my students again. Cool. But John, thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. And we'll continue the conversation sometime. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>